1: Well, I am so excited to preach these sermons. I have no idea how many sermons there will be in Revelation 21 and 22. There's going to be at least one uh, this morning. And it's not even going to cover everything in your bulletin. No way, no how, no chance. Uh, Tom sent me the sermon while I was at my IMB trustee meeting. Broke the news to me that it also is 28 pages long. So I said, all right, forget it. Um, We're going to cut it in half. And I don't really care how long it takes because you heard in my prayer, I, I'm just preaching that all of us would have hope in Christ. I mean, hope is really just faith in the future, I think. it's f- Hope and faith are almost synonymous when it comes to future good things that God's promised us. I think they are synonymous. And so I'm just preaching for your faith. I'm preaching that you would have faith based on the word of God. I'm going to talk about this more next week. But isn't it wonderful how it says uh, in verse, five, uh, verse 6, I think, uh, it says he was seated on the throne and said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down. I don't know what tone of voice he used, uh, but write this down. This is good. But even better, these words are trustworthy and they are true. So we can have a hope based on scriptural truth. Anything else really is a fantasy. It would worry me. I would dissuade you from paying attention to it. People who die and go to heaven for eight minutes or 37 minutes or something and come back and tell us what it's like. Mm, Be afraid. Don't listen to that. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to what the Scripture says and that's enough. And it's complicated. It's not easy to put these things into words, but we're going to have a wonderful time walking through it. In 2004, Randy Alcorn published a book uh, about heaven called, well, Heaven, uh, five, uh, 494 pages of some scriptural exegesis and some speculation. And uh, next week I'm going to talk about the use, uh, Alcorn argues, for the sanctified use of imagination. Um, but whatever you think about how appropriate that is, just the words beg to be explained and to be unfolded and to be meditated upon. And Alcorn wrote the book in part Because he was shocked to find that numbers of Christians that he talked to actually dreaded heaven. They were actually afraid to go to heaven. I can imagine being afraid to go to hell, but they were afraid of at least their, I think, faulty view of heaven. Uh, A kind of an ethereal, you know, non-physical, very cloudy place, lots of clouds, lots of wispiness, and lots of harp playing golden harps. One of my kids asked me, do we have to take harp lessons before they let us into heaven? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like being in language school as a missionary. When you graduate into golden harp skill, you'll be allowed to come into heaven and begin your eternal harp strumming as you sit on a cloud. And I'm sure we're going to be singing Amazing Grace forever. You know how the scripture, uh, how Amazing Grace says, uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no fewer times to sing Amazing Grace than when we first begun. And the more you think about that, it gets depressing. If people are honest, they're like, you know, I like the song. But, but honestly, there's nothing I like doing on earth that I'd want to do forever and ever and ever and ever. And so people have a hard time with that. Alcorn cites the, uh, a passage from... The uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Mark Twain, no believer at all, took glee, I'm sure, in writing this section. Miss Watson, the Christian spinster that was taking care of Huck, uh, was continually warning him that he would not go to heaven with his loose lifestyle. And Huck said about her, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she thought Tom Sawyer would go there, and and she said, not by a considerable sight. And I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. So that's Mark Twain. Clearly such a view of heaven was utterly unappealing to Huck Finn. And if we're honest, it'd be unappealing to us as well. But thank God it's not biblical. And Alcorn wrote his book Heaven to drive away such depressing views of heaven. But what is the truth? What, what can we really believe about the future to which we are going? And as I just said a moment ago, there is, there is no better way to answer that question than to turn to scripture, to study scripture. And there's no better place in the Bible to study about heaven than in the final two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. So go ahead and turn there if you're not already there. We're going to walk through them. And we're going to take our time going through them and we're going to try to squeeze all the nectar, the heavenly nectar that we can, out of the admittedly incomplete view that words can afford. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, talking about spiritual gifts, including preaching and teaching, uh, says it culminates with what is going to be eternal, what's going to remain, faith, hope, and love. Before he says that, he said, now we see through a glass or a mirror darkly or dimly. Then face to face. Now we know in part. That's why I said it's a partial view. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully even as we have been fully known. So we're seeing through a like a, a polished mirror or something like that, indistinctly, dimly. Kind of like that, that uh, man that Jesus healed in stages and how he saw at first people like trees walking around and then, then secondly he was able to see everything clearly. And I think our view of heaven might be a little bit like that. We're trying to get out of apocalyptic language, visionary language, uh, details of what our heavenly life will be like. And I think the process is well worth it. I think we should, all of us, meditate on heaven based on scripture more than we do. I think you should read Revelation 21 and 22 more frequently than you do. I think it would be wonderful if you could commit it to memory and recite it again and again. It says in Colossians 3 that we should be heavenly minded. Colossians 3, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we are commanded there to set our minds on things above and things to come. Future things. We're to... To be thinking about them all the time, not on earthly things and, and, and dark things and temporal things. But, so our, our heavenly meditation is, is commanded. Now I believe for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, I think this is definitely true, that the, the greater our suffering in this world as Christians, the sweeter our heavenly meditations will be. Brothers and sisters that are being persecuted for their faith in many places in the world feed their souls continually on meditations on heaven. It keeps them going. It keeps them hopeful. It enables them to lead torturing guards to Christ because they are so evidently filled with a kind of a hope and a fearlessness when it comes to death that they just don't have. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So when you're going through the persecution, meditate on how great your reward will be in the heavenly world. Jesus says you should rejoice. He's commanding heavenly joy based, even in suffering, earthly suffering, based on heavenly reward. And so I think when we get to heaven, we're going to go back, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, what we'll remember in heaven. I'm going to do some, a lot of speculation next week uh, on what we're going to think about in heaven and what we're going to remember in heaven and how we're going to look back on church history. But I think we're going to be able to, to see what God did to strengthen our brothers and sisters that were in prison cells in, in places of torture even ...with just streaming heavenly light, even a supernatural foretaste of heavenly joy... ...and enable them to endure great suffering. I read a book a number of years ago called The Heavenly Man. Some of you may have read it about a man named Brother Yun. And he was involved in the house church movement. When he was arrested for the first time as a Christian... uh, ...he was only 17 years old in China... And at that time, he was ministering at a a meeting far away from home. And after he was caught, he was thrown into a freezing cold prison cell. There was no heat in the cell. And his winter coat had been thrown away into the snow by the security uh, police who had caught him and were dragging him to prison. Well, there in that cold prison cell, he began to sing scripture. Psalm 150 began to sing it out loud and the more he sang, the more he was filled with supernatural joy. And gradually his frozen hands and feet regained feeling and he no longer felt cold. And this would be the regular pattern of his many incarcerations for Christ. And he was called the heavenly man because his hope in heaven was so clearly on display in those many imprisonments. So, the, the more suffering that we go through on earth, the sweeter our heavenly meditations will be. This was true of, of Christian slaves in the plantations in the uh, South before the Civil War. Slaves would be working out in the cotton fields and they would just sing constantly of heaven as their only hope, their only solace in a life of unremitting sorrow and pain and injustice. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over the Jordan and what did I see? A band of angels coming after me. I'm sometimes up, sometimes down, but still my soul feels heavenly bound. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. The best that Wikipedia can do with that is it's, its secret language for the Underground Railroad. <laughs> Look, it may have been from time to time, but I'm thinking they were thinking about heaven. Yearning for heaven. Now, honestly, most of us don't go through any kind of suffering like that. I mean, there's definitely sufferings that are common to all people all over the world. Sufferings of, of, medical, of a medical nature, financial pain. There's chronic pain people go through. I understand that. But I think in general, our present level of affluence and our level of comfort renders heavenly meditation not so sweet and not so frequent. I don't think we do it as much as others do. Proverbs 27, 7 says, he who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet. The Bible says that we are aliens and strangers in this world, but the more affluent and the more comfortable our lives are, the harder that is to believe. Those who lived by faith in the past, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Uh, They went through extreme suffering, people of whom the world was not worthy, but they just fed themselves on heavenly hope. They saw from a distance their heavenly home to which they were going. But when all our needs are met physically, our stomachs are full of good food, our beds are warm, there's no real danger on the horizon, it's easy to forget about God and it's easy to not think much about heaven. Now there are multiple benefits of a strong yearning for heaven, strong yearning For heaven, first and foremost, proves what your treasure really is. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, heavenly minded people, they just know where their treasure really is. So, they live lives of security. In this world. I'm not afraid of losing things. Secondly. A strong yearning for heaven develops Christian character. There's a fearlessness and boldness and perseverance. In people who are drinking continually from thoughts of heaven. It shapes your character. Thirdly. A strong yearning for heaven greatly glorifies God. Think about Psalm 73 where the psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you And earth has nothing I desire beside you. If you really mean it. That really glorifies God. But he's saying, I, I really, the psalmist is saying, there's nothing I really desire on earth compared to God. If I could have God, I don't need anything else in this world. Fourthly, a strong yearning for heaven makes all life God-centered because heaven is a God-centered place. And so the more you meditate on heaven, the more God-centered you're going to be in this world. You're going to be thinking about God more. Thinking about the Father more, pleasing the Father more, be more God-centered. Fifthly, a strong yearning for heaven helps us to realize how insignificant our present earthly condition really is, both good and bad. It really is insignificant. Your life is a mist. It's a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And whether things are going really well for you, as you would define them, or they're going really badly for you, it's just as nothing compared to the heavenly reality. Either way. So earthly accolades and honors and prosperity are as nothing compared to heaven. Heavenly accolades and heavenly life and heavenly prosperity is infinitely better. And our present sufferings are very small compared to the future glory. So it puts everything in perspective. It enables us to persevere through suffering. Paul says in In Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. A strong yearning for heaven results in holiness. It is a very powerful force for putting sin to death. If you are heavenly minded, you will yearn for holiness and purity. Right after Colossians 3.1-4, which I just quoted, you know, when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Do you see the link? John does the same thing in 1 John 3. We don't know what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Everyone who has that hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure so it's power a power for holiness heavenly meditation strong yearning for heaven drives missions and evangelism i already said in my prayer but the more heavenly minded you are the more evidently you have a hope in you that non-christians don't have the more they're going to ask you to give a reason for it and that's especially true if you're going through suffering So it drives, it just, it creates, it creates missionary encounters. You know how Tertullian said the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. Well, it's only seed if they die well. If they die well, if they die evidently, obviously filled with hope in heaven. Now the pagans will sit up and notice that. Say, now I couldn't do that. They have something I don't have. Hope in heaven drives missions also in that it frees missionaries up from earthly entanglement so they can go overseas and serve in much worse conditions than they have here because they're they're yearning for heavenly glory both for the people that they're sharing the gospel with and for themselves they want rewards we should want rewards we want god to be pleased with us and so a heavenly mindset actually frees people up to go serve in some remarkably difficult settings Strong yearning for heaven keeps us vigorously serving God for the rest of our lives. Gives you perseverance in service. After that marvelous chapter on the resurrection body, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul applies it in verse 58. It says, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because there will be a resurrection of the body, your service to the church is not in vain. Your gift of administration is not in vain. Your financial giving is not in vain. Your teaching of toddlers in a BFL class is not in vain. Your secret closet prayer ministry is not in vain. Your evangelism here in Durham is not in vain. Even if the last 25 people you've witnessed to, none of them have been interested. It's not in vain. Why? Because there's going to be a resurrection of the body. Now you might say, "Well, how does that go? To just think on it. But it just has to do with a heavenly meditation. The more confident you are, the more energetic and persevering in service to Christ you will be. And therefore, it is well worth it for us to meditate on heaven. A lot. All right. So you're like, Pastor, would you just... Start. Go ahead and do it. That was all introductory stuff. Yes, let's start. Verse 1, Revelation 21 and verse 1. And it begins with this marvelous statement. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Isn't it beautiful how, to some degree, we've come full circle now in the Bible? How does the Bible begin? Genesis 1:1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how does it end? It ends with a new heaven and a new earth. How marvelous is that? There are so many themes, vibrant, vigorous themes in the Bible that come to fruition and completion in Revelation 21 and 22. More than you really can count. It's really a, an incredible chapter. And it's hard to trace them all out. The uh, uh, themes of, of, of uh, the tabernacle and the temple come to consummation there, and, and of service and uh, service to Christ and worship, and all kinds of these themes. But this it begins with this issue of creation where the Bible began. And using the term heaven and earth means that we're talking about something we can recognize. This is not going to be some alien universe, like we have no idea even what this any of this is. So the term heaven and earth are familiar to us because we've seen the heavens, the starry heavens. We've not seen heaven itself, the spiritual realm. But we've seen the sky and the stars. And, and we've seen the earth. We've walked and we understand it. And so there's that sense. But now it's, it's new. And so we should picture ourselves walking physically in the new earth. And in, in involved in the, the new heavens. And so it is a physical reality that's coming. And a spiritual one as well. I often think about exploring the new earth, like Lewis and Clark, you know, paddling up the, you know, Mississippi out of St. Louis and then going up the, the various rivers and then... But no danger, no disease, no hostile enemies attacking us, no starvation, no, no extreme temperature, extreme cold or extreme heat, just exploration. Oh, how awesome is that going to be, this new world? It's physical. And here will come finally a consummation of the verse that that I asked to be put over the the missions map years ago. And we have a new map now, same verse though. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we're going to just explore and see how God has woven His glory into everything in creation. And we're going to know it and give Him the credit. We're not going to be idolaters We're going to give him the full credit for the creation. We're not going to worship and serve created things, the creature. We're going to serve the creator. Genesis chapter 2 gives a picture of that first world to be explored. You remember how the Garden of Eden was there, that God made this beautiful garden. And there was a river that ran through the garden, remember? And it separated into four uh, headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. And it winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also, also there. It, what an interesting thing for Moses to put there. And it's like, all right, if they hadn't fallen into sin, Adam and Eve at some point are getting in a canoe and they're going whitewater rafting and they're going out of Eden and they're going to explore the whole world. And how beautiful would it have been. And sadly, they did fall into sin and the world has been cursed since then and Eden is gone. But we're going to go to another world and there's going to be a river flowing out of that place too. We'll get to that eventually, a couple of months from now. Anyway, Revelation 22, (laughs) 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. I have a number of weeks to figure out how one tree stands on both sides of a great river. I don't know, but we're going to work that out. How incredible is that going to be? But there's this sense of exploration, physicality, a real world to be explored. Now, this heavenly world, it must be predicted by the Holy Spirit through the writings. And it must be unveiled, like in the book of Revelation, it has to be revealed. Our our idle speculations will be damaging. But there's enough to go on here. And the phrase itself, new heaven and new earth, first appears in Scripture in Isaiah 65. Verse 17 and 18, and says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Do you see there in Isaiah 65, new heaven, new earth, and and a Jerusalem that will be delightful. And it says in the text, Revelation 21, 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So John saw it. I saw it. It's a visionary sight. It was given to him because he's an apostle. He's there on the island of Patmos. And he's transported. He's got this vision of what is coming. And then he says the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now we covered this a little bit last time. uh, But some of you may not have been here or uh, remember what I said. But in Revelation 20 verse 11, there it says... Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it... Earth and sky fled from His presence. And there was no place for them. So I ruminated about that in conjunction with this verse, Revelation 21.1. And said the present physical universe that we know, that we call home, is going to go away. It's going to be transformed, I believe, is the best way to look at it. It's going to be made new. In some sense, it's going to be radically destroyed... In Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, the author of Hebrews, quoting Psalm 102, says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. Peter makes it plain that the present universe is going to go away. The present earth and the present Sky and outer space, all of this physical universe that we know is going to go away. It says in 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Two verses later, That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. It's not hard to imagine a thermonuclear conflagration in which the atoms themselves release the energy in them in some kind of massive fireball or something like that. It wouldn't be surprising. That's the language that Peter uses. But I believe that there must also be, in some sense, continuity with this present world. Just the term heaven and earth implies continuity, using the same words. The word new implies difference. So there's continuity and difference. So I think the best thing is to think about The resurrection body and the world will be like it. A resurrected world. This world but resurrected. Just like your body, if you're a Christian, will be resurrected and made new. And so what what will the resurrection body be like? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 describes it in the language of a seed that's sown. It's sown, it's raised. Sown and raised. So there's a, a, a continuity but a disconnect as well. And in in 1 Corinthians 15, it says the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We are going to have a spiritual body. Now that's a weird coupling. But our resurrection bodies will be different than we can imagine, but still physical. Remember how Jesus said, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger in the nail marks. Physical. He asked them for broiled fish and ate it. Remember? Because it's all they had available. So, they, so he ate fish. I think he could have done better. But that's my own opinion. But that's what he was proving. I can chew and swallow. I've got, all right. But you've got a spiritual side to Jesus' resurrection body, right? Where he's just going through doors. He's going through the, the, the wa- cave walls of the tomb. He's going up through the grave clothes that are like a mummy, like, like uh, sticky, sticky, resinous, aromatic spices. He comes right up through that. Comes right out of the wall. It's different. People didn't recognize him unless he revealed himself. It's different. It's the same but different. And so we're going to get res- a resurrection body like that. And the adjectives Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, it's imperishable. It cannot perish. can't fade or get old. It's glorious, radiant, and shining. It is a powerful body. It, we're, we're not going to ever get tired. We're going to be energetic and strong. And it is a spiritual body. And by the way, on spiritual body, I've begun to meditate on this. It's, it's like transparent gold. It's like a single pearl as a gate. You're like, I don't, I can't have trouble picturing that. I think I can picture the pearl. I just don't want to picture the oyster that made it. So like, how is that possible? This massive thing, it just, it just seems to stretch my mind so I have a hard time figuring out what a spiritual body is and what transparent gold is and and what a single pearl could even be and so that seems to be what it's like with with our resurrection body so now here's the thing think about your resurrection body then you'll understand why there has to be a resurrected world you have to be somewhere with that body resurrected feet need a resurrected ground to walk on Anthony Hocum said this, resurrected bodies are not intended just to float in space or to flit from cloud to cloud. They call for a new earth on which to live and work and glorify God. The doctrine of the resurrection of the body makes no sense whatever apart from the doctrine of the new earth or what I would say the resurrected earth. And then it says, the next phrase, it says, and there was no longer any sea. Now, Randy Alcorn disagrees with this. Um, that's just <laughs> if Randy Alcorn likes it, it's going to be in heaven. Um, that's one of the basic rules. I think it's a marvelous book. But, you know, when you're speculating, it's like, oh, no longer any sea? And that's a reaction that some people can have. You're like, boy, the sea is spectacular. People go to the sea for vacations. They go to look and, and see. It's just such a display of beauty and power. I mean, especially when you see the sunrise, on the east coast, over the ocean, and set over the west coast, and it's just beautiful. I mean, some of the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen in my life has involved the sea, like Acadia National Park, where you can just see all the, you know, the harbor there along that rocky main coastline, and you got all those sailboats out there, and it's twinkling, it's just so pretty, it's just beautiful. I'll never forget bringing Carolyn, who was born in June of 1996 uh, in a landlocked state known as Kentucky. And the only massive body of water she'd ever seen was the Ohio River. I'm like, you got to see the ocean. So my mom ha- has a house in Orleans on Cape Cod. And so it was Christmas time. And uh, I couldn't wait to put Carolyn in the car and drive her six months old to Nosset Beach. It was just me and her. And we got out of the car and we walked up the stairs. And there's this like sand dune kind of crest. So you can't see the ocean. And then you climb up and then there it is. And even better... There had been a very serious winter storm the day before. And the waves were in fine form. And it was crashing. And it was windy. And you could feel the, the, the foam, uh, you know, the mist on your face. You could smell the salt. And uh, I remember distinctly, it's like, I don't ever want to miss this moment. I've seen the ocean before. But I've never seen my daughter see it for the first time. So I had the foresight. God gave me the foresight to just watch her face. And... Uh, I mean, she's a ordless little baby. <laughs> and so all she did was just point. Just <laughs> point. It's like, don't look at me. Look at that. <laughs> what a spectacular thing. But I just, uh, powerful. You are know, like, well, then why wouldn't there be any sea? It's so beautiful. And, the, you know, whale watches, they're, they're marvelous. I'd love to go on a whale watch in the new heaven and new earth last whale watch I went on was rough. It was choppy, and I won't describe the effect that it had on my stomach. So, but the text says there's no longer any sea. And we need to look at the darker side, too. First of all, the, the seas, it could be argued that there weren't any seas before the, the flood of Noah. We don't really know. Uh, he separated the water from the dry land. But at any rate, uh, the seas, I think, are vastly larger now than they were before the flood of Noah. Vastly larger. And that was a display of God's wrath and judgment. The sea harbors in the Hebraic mind, the Jewish mind, sea monsters that need to be killed. And and without the sea monsters being killed, there can be no salvation. There can be no rescue. So Rahab, the monster of the deep. In Psalm 89, you rule over the surging sea. And when its waves mount up, you still them. And you crushed Rahab like one of the slain. This churning sea was the source of of Daniel's four great wicked empires that came up out of the churning sea. One beast after another. And John has the same image of the Antichrist that comes up out of the churning sea. And the sea represents the nations in all their tumult and their churning. And there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. For the wicked are like the churning sea whose waves cannot rest. So if we literally take what it says, there'll be no, no, no longer any sea. We, we must imagine a new earth that's going to be radically different than the one we know. And the ecology, the biology of our lives in the future world will be very different. We get 70% of our oxygen from sea plants. 70% of the air comes from marine plants. We get 83% of our rainwater from the sea. So the ecology, the biology of the new earth is going to be radically different. Also, the surface of the present earth is covered uh, by water. The surface that's covered by water is 71.1%. 71% of the surface of the earth is, is water. And if all of that surface area became land and new earth with all of the creativity of God, there's going to be a lot of exploring to do. And plenty of room for us to do it in. Don't have any idea how many people will be redeemed? No idea. Most people will not be redeemed. Jesus said that. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. I have no idea what percentage of the population of the earth will be redeemed. Can't even speculate. Jesus put it in more general terms. Many and only a few. Many will be condemned, only a few saved. But we also know from Revelation 7, a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So a smaller group of people than we presently know, exploring much more land than we can even possibly imagine. It will be incredible. So a new universe is coming. It will be radiant with the glory of God. It will be our home for all eternity. And we would know nothing about it except that scripture reveals that it's coming, the new heaven, new earth. Then in verse 2, it tells us that there's a city coming as well. Not just country, but city. Not just beautiful land, but a beautiful city. And it's called the New Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. Then I saw a holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the, the capital city of God's eternal empire. Where his throne will be. And there will be, therefore, as I just mentioned a moment ago, a radiantly beautiful land to explore and a radiantly beautiful city to live in. For me, I've seen some amazing sights all over the world. I tend to gravitate more toward nature. I get refreshed by nature rather than city. Other people are, are different. I know other people just find cities exciting. And I do too. My heart loves nature. I love national parks. I mentioned Acadia. I just think it's so beautiful there. I've been to the Redwoods along the Pacific Coast, one there in Northern California. I'll never forget seeing those massive trees, the rocky coastline. Been to see the Half Dome in Yosemite. Very, very spectacular. I saw actually Mount St. Helens in eruptions after the main eruption uh, or steam coming up. That was impressive in Oregon. As I was going down the Oregon coastline, I could see that. Just an old faithful uh, in Yellowstone. Interesting place. All of the, the nature, the natural beauty. But I've also seen some amazing cities too. Uh, just the, the sights and sounds of city life. It's impressive actually. I remember I was speaking at a, at a conference on, on outreach to Muslims in New York City. And we were staying in a decent hotel. Very decent. <laughs> um, on the Avenue of Americas in New York City. And I'd never seen that before. I was on the thirtieth floor of the hotel and I was it was like this man made canyon of steel and glass and light and when the sun went down you could see I could see this guy working at his desk right across the thing and he's working away and just as far as I could see left and right were all these man made buildings and it it had its own kind of beauty actually. This summer I uh this past summer I was in in Paris. I was on my way to um Cameroon and missed my flight. Wasn't my fault. So I had an extra day in Paris. And it was just it was a hardship, but, you know, we go through these, these times, and the Lord gives us grace. But I was like, man, I'm going to that hotel they put me up in, and then I'm taking the train. I'm going into Paris. And I, I did as much walking as you could possibly do in one day. I was, like, thoroughly exhausted. But as the sun was going down, I climbed the Eiffel Tower, and I'm sitting the, seeing the City of Lights, so-called Paris. And it's just so beautiful. It's amazing. London, same thing. Big Ben, all the monuments, all this kind of things. So when you think of city, you think of society, you think of people together. People working together, eating together, experiencing things together, having a common culture together. I've seen some amazing European cities like Prague. What a beautiful city Prague is. One of my favorite cities. Think about a cobblestone kind of, of courtyard of, of old buildings. Like, you know, and they're, they're real buildings. Not Epcot Center now. This is, this is the real thing. And it's so beautiful. And the Charles River, across the Volatava River. And you could see the, the, the city, uh, the, the uh, ancient Um, castle there on the hill and it's just so beautiful. And so there's a man-made beauty because we are created in the image of God. And I know that Babel has this Obviously, the Tower of Babel was built as a display of human arrogance and pride. But imagine the construction and the building. And will there be other cities in the new earth? I don't know. That one of Jesus' parables about the ten minas implies that that one who managed his affairs well would be in charge of ten cities. And somebody else in charge of five cities. I don't really know. But this new Jerusalem is the capital city. And we're all going to be together and see its glory and its beauty. And again, the word Jerusalem links back to a history. A heritage. Jerusalem was the place that God chose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there for his dwelling. He told them before they entered the promised land, I will choose a place. And that was the place he chose. It was called the city of David because David conquered it militarily from the Jebusites. And that was the place God chose. The tabernacle had been moving around. Place to place was in Shiloh, different places. But then it came at last. The Ark of the Covenant came to Jerusalem. And that was the place where God put his name. And his glory was there. And and three times a year the Jews would would, would take pilgrimages. And they would go up to Mount Zion. To Jerusalem. And they would offer their sacrifices there. And that that was the heritage of Jerusalem. But the city of Jerusalem also had a a history of great wickedness. Great evil and sin and idolatry. It was a dirty, filthy, nasty, sinful, wicked city. And the prophets railed against its wickedness. Isaiah railed against the wickedness of Jerusalem. Isaiah 121 says, See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was once full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Isaiah 121. And Jesus wept over that city of Jerusalem, wept over it. And said, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he left Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem will be pure. Perfectly Pure. Radiantly glorious, purified of all of her uncleanness, purified of all of her idolatry and her wickedness. A radiant, beautiful place. The perfection of the Old Testament purpose, especially the place where God would put his name, where his glory would dwell. The perfection of that intention. Now, the New Jerusalem is both a city and a people. The church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, is the New Jerusalem. It's also a location, as I said, because we'll have resurrection bodies, we need a place to be, to congregate. But here, this language is of a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. She is radiantly beautiful. She's ready for her wedding day, and she's coming down ready. She's descending from God, descending ready and beautifully adorned. She was made ready in heaven by God himself. She was prepared by thousands of years of redemptive history, made ready, made glorious. Thousands of years of evangelism and missions made her ready. Thousands of years of the ministry of the church, of spiritual gifts, of sanctification made her ready. And in this, Christ got her ready and she got herself ready. Both both languages used of her. In Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands, listen to this, for the righteous acts of the saints. It's Revelation 19.8. So by her righteous good deeds, she is getting herself ready for her wedding day. But she is made ready by God and by Christ as well. She's descending ready. She's descending glorious. Look later in, in the same chapter in verse 9 through 11, Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls for the last... Plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11, it's shown with the glory of God. You see that's radiant with the glory of God. God got her ready. God made her glorious. God made her beautiful. And the text in, in, uh, that we're reading, Revelation 21-2, it says, the text says, adorned or beautifully dressed, for her husband. And the word cosmeo is used from which we get the word cosmetics. So she's adorned herself and I think about the adornment of every bride. I've done so many weddings and just been such a privilege to see the brides and they all, all of them look beautiful. All of them. Hard not to get emotional. I mean, I remember watching one bride come down and my daughter was dressed in a little miniature bride dress because she was the flower girl. And I uh, I started to lose it. That was bad. You know, a lot of times fathers are looking back. I was a father looking ahead and crying. So, but so beautiful. And her dress is the most, probably the most costly dress she's ever going to wear. Maybe it's made of silk. Maybe it's got sparkles or different things, you know, woven into it. and, And it took her a long time to choose it. Maybe even to make it. And her hair is perfectly styled. Every hair is in place, and her face is shining with joy. She's got just the right amount of jewelry, tastefully chosen, and she's gotten herself ready. She's beautiful. Now, in American weddings, the bride gets herself ready with help probably from her mother, bridesmaids, no help from the bridegroom. I mean, he's not going to be any help. What can he do? As a matter of fact, in many cases, he hasn't even seen her until the moment she walks down the aisle that day. He's not seen her. Almost a tradition. But in this case, this radiant bride has been gotten ready by her bridegroom for centuries. It is Christ who got her ready. And this is a word to every husband in Ephesians 5 husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. That's what Jesus has been doing to his bride for 2,000 years. Her beauty is his work. He did not find her beautiful. He found her like Ezekiel said kicking around in her blood and her defilement. He found her ugly, he found her rebellious, he found her sinful. That's all of us. Read about it in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. That's us. That's the bride of Christ. And he has made us, he will have made us radiantly holy and glorious and beautiful. It's the work of Christ. And this wedding image is so powerful. The bride is the consummation of the wedding image of Israel and God. And how God married Israel. But she broke his heart, and now she's come together. And it's 3 till noon. I was going to finish all of this, but we're going to stop here. Pick it up next time. Just want to apply it quickly. First and foremost, I just yearn. If you're here listening to me with your ears, listen to me with your heart. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Please don't miss it. Please don't miss it. Don't, don't be excluded. Don't be on the outside trying to get in when it's too late and and you'll not be admitted. It's too late. Hear me now. This is the day of salvation. Hear me now. Hear the gospel. God sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. If you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven and you will be there in heaven. That's all. You don't have to do any good works. You must not do any good works to pay for your sins. Trust in Christ. Don't miss this opportunity. It's a doorway of opportunity open for you. Walk through it. I was on a plane maybe about two years ago and I was sharing the gospel with somebody and the Holy Spirit was just so completely filling me that I never met this guy and I had a deep yearning to spend eternity with him in heaven. It's like, oh, don't miss it. Don't miss it. He wouldn't have understood that so I toned it back but I was just like, I don't want you to miss it. Be there. And then, for, for all of you that are Christians, I'm just urging you, be heavenly minded. Think about this more than you do. And this week, let's... Let's take opportunities to talk to to co-workers, to non-Christians about these things. Say, you know, Sunday I heard heard this sermon about heaven and I just, I'd love to, do you ever think about heaven? Get in a conversation with somebody about heaven. Let the Lord open the door to share the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the things that we've covered today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to just walk through this incredible truth and the things you're showing us. And Lord, I pray that you would please Strengthen each one of us, make us, O oh Lord, radiant and, and strong and energetic in serving you, and help us to be just so filled with buoyant hope that we would give you the glory that you deserve by the way we live in Jesus name. Amen.:
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes